0: Well, welcome once again to this gathering of the Santa Cruz Baptist Church. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to encourage you to open them up to Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. It's on page 834, uh, if you're following along in the Pew Bibles under the chairs. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Uh, Today we're going to be finishing up uh, another section of Mark before um, next week we'll be doing kind of like we did at the end of Colossians, where we get an opportunity to kind of share how this section of Mark has impacted us and the things that we've learned and the things that we're trying to apply in our lives. So we'll be doing that next week, and then we'll have a a sermon on The incarnation um, of Christ coming and becoming flesh. Um, And then in the new year, we're going to be kicking off a series through the book of Daniel. Um, But as we broke up the book of Mark into around 50-something sermons, um, we knew that we had a decision to make. Either we would spend a whole year in the book of Mark, which wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, um, or we'd do Mark in several smaller chunks over the course of two years. Um, with kind of other books in between those chunks. So that's the decision that we made. Um, So our first section of Mark, if you guys remember, went from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 4, finishing with the disciples on a boat in the middle of a sea asking a crucial question. Uh, They said, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So that's where our first section ended. And now uh, we finish our second section, taking us from chapter 5 into the middle of the book of Mark. Uh, In this section, uh, we've seen Jesus heal a demon-possessed man named named Legion. We've seen a girl raised from the dead. We've seen a woman healed of a blood disorder. We've witnessed Jesus be rejected, even in his own hometown. We've seen him send out the 12 disciples on mission. Uh, We've seen a, a flashback to a crazy party and the decapitation of John the Baptist. We've marveled at Jesus feeding 5,000-plus men and women from five loaves and two fish. We've sat speechless as Jesus walked on water. He's challenged the religious elite in their understanding of clean and unclean. In the last two weeks, we've seen him celebrate the faith of a Gentile and heal a deaf man. So, who is Jesus? That's the question Mark wants us to ask and answer with each and every narrative that he writes. And that brings us to today's text. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people, and he sent them away, and immediately... He got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see, and having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, you may be thinking as we read that text, Am I experiencing deja vu here? Didn't we already see this story in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 43? Well, don't worry. You're not going crazy. But it's not the same story. In fact, uh, many liberal Bible scholars have attempted to argue that this is just some kind of scribal error. Uh, that a copyist accidentally repeated the same story a couple pages over. But that's a hard argument to make for several reasons. Most significantly, that verses 19 and 20 of our text, Jesus himself distinguishes between the two stories, calling them distinct moments. So, no, this isn't an error, and it's not a mistake. It's Jesus being a bit repetitive, And it's intentional. Both Jesus and Mark are meaning to teach us something, something important, something that's foundational to the gospel and to the Great Commission. But to make that point, I do wanna kinda show us some of the similarities and the pattern that Mark's showing us here between these two stories. So uh, up here on the screen, uh, take a look at the structure Uh, both in Mark 6 and Mark 8, we do have the feeding of a great multitude. We have a boat trip. We have a confrontation with the Pharisees. We have a conversation about bread. We have a miraculous healing. And then we have a significant confession. So, do you see what Mark's doing? He's taking these historic moments all moments that really happened in history. He's arranging them to teach us something theologically. And here's the point. Remembering what we've seen Jesus do in the past should help us trust him in the present. Remembering what we've seen Jesus do in the past should help us trust him in the present. And that's true for every single one of us this morning. First of all, we have God's Word, where we get to see God be faithful over and over and over and over again. Then we have our own experience. I've experienced God's faithfulness to me in the past. I'm sure if you thought about it long enough, you would say the same. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past should help us trust Him in the present. Okay, so with that structure in mind, let's look at the text through three different points this morning. Point one in verses one through ten, a miraculous feeding, point two, the blindness of the Pharisees, and then point three, the blindness of the disciples. So point one, a miraculous feeding. Now there are several truths that Jesus intends to communicate through this second feeding. Uh, Some of these truths are repetitive, and others are brand new. But let's, let's start by walking through the text itself. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. It says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he, meaning Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Do you notice in verse 2 why Jesus does what he does here? Yes. He's going to teach us and them something through this miracle. But first and foremost, he does it because he cares, he has compassion. In Mark chapter 6, Mark told us that he fed the 5,000 because he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, you remember. Mark tells us that in Mark chapter 6. But here, the motive is actually on Jesus' lips. He's saying it out loud I have compassion on the crowd. And look at how he notices their situation. I have compassion on the crowd. They have nothing to eat. If I send them away, they'll faint. Once again, just like with the disciples in the boat earlier in Mark, he saw their need, just like he sees yours and mine. Do you understand the beauty that's there in these words? He sees your needs. He cares. Maybe you've gone through a rough time. All of us have gone through a rough time this year. Maybe you've felt like you're all alone and no one cares about your situation. Jesus cares. He sees your needs, even the specifics of your needs. And he cares. And amidst his concern... He wants to teach us something. First, notice the difference in the posture of the disciples here in Mark 8 from the last time in Mark 6. In Mark 6, here's how it all went down. Mark 6, verse 35. It says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And here we go. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So the first time, their response was, Okay, Jesus, let's go buy some bread. We've got some money in the bank, right? We can go do this. Look at their response here. The second time. Verse 4 of our text. And his disciples answered him. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? In other words, they're no longer relying on their own resources. They know at this point that they have nothing in and of themselves to pull this off. Jesus was their only resource. And this is right where Jesus wants them and where he wants us this morning, relying on him, coming with questions that only he can answer. So what's he trying to teach them? First, he wants everyone in this story and us here to know without a doubt that Jesus is the bread of life. Remember that since the beginning of the book of Mark, Jesus has been showing himself to be the second and better Moses. Notice where Jesus does this miracle in Mark eight, verse four. Says that it happened in a desolate place, and this word here for desolate is aramos. It's the word for desert, or wilderness. Well, what happened in the desert or the wilderness in the Old Testament? God's people were rescued out of Egypt and then they were in the desert or the wilderness for 40 years. How did God provide for them there? Exodus chapter 16, bread from heaven. And God did this so that they would know that he was the Lord, their God. Provided for them bread from heaven over and over and over again. He provided for their needs daily. He provided life. Plain and simple, without the bread from heaven in the desert, they would have died. Jesus didn't want them to miss this here in Mark 8. In fact, the first time he did this miracle, he explicitly spelled it out for them. John chapter 6, verses 31 through 35, the the crowd asked Jesus this question. They said, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're quoting Exodus 16. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread of life. He's not doing this miracle as a cool party trick. He's doing it to reveal himself as the final and true provider of life. He's revealing himself as the second and better Moses. He's revealing himself as God. But this identification of Jesus as the bread from heaven goes back even further. We're entering the Christmas season, right? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, right? Do you know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? Bet is the Hebrew word for house. Lahem is the word for bread. Jesus was literally born in the house of bread. Isn't God brilliant? He sovereignly plans every detail of the story to make sure that we don't miss it. And at the end of Jesus' life, Jesus identifies with bread once again. It's a text that we read every single week in this service 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 24. For I received from the Lord, Paul saying this, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you see it? How does Jesus, as the bread of heaven, ultimately give us life? By suffering on the cross. By doing this miracle a second time, Jesus was reminding them again that he was the bread of life. That He was life. And aside from this connection to Moses, this miracle had messianic overtones as well. God had given promises to his people about the blessings that the Messiah would bring whenever he came. Look at Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. It says, prophesies that, and look how Mary, Jesus' mother, praised God in Luke 1 53. She says, he has filled the hungry with good things. So Jesus is taking those here in Mark 8 out in a desert place. He's taking those with no money. And he's filling them with the richest of fare. He's the bread of heaven. He's the Messiah spoken of in Isaiah 55. But there's more. This is where it's important to note the differences between the first feeding of the 5,000 and this feeding. Where did the first feeding take place? More specifically, who was he feeding? He was in a Jewish region, feeding Jewish people the first time. Not here. Here, he's in the Decapolis. It's a group of 10 Hellenistic or Greek speaking cities. This second feeding is explicitly to the Gentiles. Remember the text that Tyler preached a couple weeks ago, the one with the Syrophoenician woman, where she knew that Jesus came first to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. It's happening. And this isn't a new direction for the Bible. It's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. What is it that God said to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God shows up, speaks to Abraham, and he says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. Abraham's blessed to be a blessing. But to who? Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 through 18. This is a reiteration or a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant. It says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, verse 18. And your offspring shall um, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what's the scope of the Abrahamic blessing? All nations. Through whom? Through Abraham's offspring. Who's that? Jesus. Do you see it? Jesus is the better Moses. Moses. He's the Messiah of Isaiah 55. And he's the offspring of Abraham. He's not only the bread for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. Guess who that is? Us. Unless you're of Jewish birth, every single one of us is of the nations. We're Gentiles. And Jesus is life for pagans like us. He came to this earth, became flesh, became human so that he could die in our place. The death that we all deserve because of our sin. He was buried, then rose from the grave three days later, defeating once and for all sin, Satan, and death. And those who turn from sin and trust in him as their only hope of salvation will have eternal life. In the book of Revelation, that's precisely who we see around the throne of God. Not just Jews. The nations. Everyone. People from every tribe and tongue unified around Christ. Jesus is the bread from heaven given for Jews and Gentiles. So the last truth we're meant to see here in this feeding is this, that Jesus' supply far exceeds our demand. He is the bread of heaven. He is the bread of life. But Jesus' supply far exceeds our demand. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. It says, And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And they were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Now, in chapter 6, again, in the first feeding, how many baskets full did they pick up? Twelve. Jesus was making a point there, that he's sufficient to provide for the twelve tribes of Israel. But here, in our text, the word for basket is different. Now, this word for basket, it's a word for wicker hamper. The same kind that Paul was lowered out of a city wall in, in Acts 9.25 in Damascus. In other words, these baskets are big enough to hold human beings. They're not small. Further, and I don't want to press this too far, but there were seven baskets here. With the 12 baskets in the first feeding, we know that this was symbolic. It seems to be here too. In the Bible, the number seven usually represents fullness and completion. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, my my supply far outpaces your demand. I'm not just sufficient for the Jews. I am that. But I'm super sufficient for the whole world. So do you know that today? It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, God's grace is sufficient for you. When you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, God's grace is sufficient for you. It'll never run out. I love how Paul says it so clearly in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass, referring to the garden, led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness, meaning Christ dying on the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus's grace is sufficient for all our needs, and then some. And one last point here before moving on. It's easy to miss this. He did the same thing in the first feeding in Mark 6. But did you notice in verse 6 that Jesus, says, gave to his disciples... To set before the people. Gave to his disciples to set before the people. Do you see what he's teaching them there? You rely on Jesus for all provision. And you, disciples, get to share life with all of the people. It was the disciples' role to share bread with those in need. This is evangelism. For those of us who have been satisfied by Jesus, the bread of heaven, we don't have to. We get to share the bread with those who are spiritually hungry. Can you imagine, just just put yourself in the disciples' shoes here. Can you imagine how fun it must have been to be one of the disciples here, getting to, to pass bread out seemingly out of nowhere? Can you imagine just how big of a smile you'd have on your face as you just kind of chuckled and laughed, shook your head and grabbed some more bread to pass out until all 4,000 people are fed and full? It'd be amazing. Well, Christians, you can do that today. Jesus's grace, as we just learned, will never run out, ever. Each week, we take the Lord's Supper as a church. We get to feast on the bread of life. And when you go from here, you get to go carrying that bread, sharing it with you wherever you go. The good news of Jesus is all satisfying. It's for all nations. And you get to set it before all people. Jesus is still in the business of taking our inadequate resources, blessing them, and multiplying them to a needy world. As one commentator points out, a little can become a lot in the hands of the Creator God. Now, very quickly, I want us to see how two different groups of people responded to all of this. Point two, the blindness of the, of the Pharisees. Look with me again at verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply. Remember, we saw that in last week's text. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. you see how blind they are here? This is the essence of what we see in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Paul says, in their case, the God of this world, meaning the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Pharisees have literally witnessed the God of the universe doing sign after sign after sign after sign. And here they are arguing with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. He just gave them a sign from heaven and they can't see it. Their mind is is made up, regardless of the facts right in front of them. Maybe some of you have dealt with people like this. No amount of reason will open their eyes or their hearts. They're spiritually blind to the truth. Do you understand why prayer is such an essential, vital part of evangelism? Before someone can see, there has to be a miracle. God has to open their eyes. He has to lift the veil according to 2 Corinthians 4. But we don't lose hope. Even amidst this, we don't lose hope because we see later in the book of Mark, Jesus is in the business of giving what? Sight to the blind. Friends, we must be praying for those who can't see Jesus. We must be praying that God will open their eyes all the while, knowing that he can. Unfortunately, though, blindness can be closer to home as well. Point three, the blindness of the disciples. This next section would be quite comical, frankly, if it weren't so sad. Jesus has not once, but twice, multiplied a small amount of bread to feed thousands Remember what happened last time. The disciples immediately went out onto the water. They were scared. And Mark told us that they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Do you remember that? They didn't get the bread thing. Their hearts were hardened. Surely they'll get it this time, right? Let's see. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So, Jesus sees this coming a mile away. And he gives them a warning here in verse 15. First of all, Anytime the God of the universe says, watch out, beware, we should probably listen. I mean, anytime I see one of those beware of dog signs, I tend to take it pretty seriously. (laughs) How much more important is Jesus, who says, watch out, beware. Well, what's he telling them to beware of? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's that? Well, leaven or yeast throughout the Bible is a symbol of evil. We see Paul telling us several times in reference to sin within the church that he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin will spread throughout the entire church. A small amount can radically change anything that it's added to. If you've ever done a Passover Seder, uh, we, we do one of those every year here. It's a blast. But if you've ever done a Passover Seder, you've seen the symbolism here of leaven. You hide leavened breadcrumbs all over the room. And at one point during the meal, all of the kids just go wild and they go out and they search for the breadcrumbs, the leaven. Then what do they do? They symbolically, together in a basket, toss the leaven out of the house, out the front door. Fun part of it. So do you see what Jesus is saying to the disciples here? He's saying, beware of false doctrine. Beware of hypocrisy. Specifically, beware of unbelief. A little bit mixed in will radically alter you. That's what he's saying to the disciples here in the boat. Again, we've got to remember these are the disciples that he's talking to. This is us that he's talking to. Christians, beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. Beware of unbelief. He goes on in verse 16. So even after him saying, Beware, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Once again, Jesus is speaking spiritually to them, but they're thinking in the physical realm. They're spiritually blind, too. They've just been part of a mind-blowing miracle. They're once again in a boat with Jesus himself. This should have been a joy-filled moment. And yet, they're discontent and focused on what they don't have. Have you ever been there focused on what you don't have instead of content in christ i have let's see what jesus says next he asked him questions verses 17 and 18 and jesus again aware of this said to them why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread do you not yet perceive or understand Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? You see what he did with those questions? He took them from where they were, thinking about their physical lack, to where they needed to be, focusing on their hearts, their spiritual blindness and deafness. The disciples had physically heard Jesus' teaching. They had seen his miracles and his compassion. But they didn't yet understand with their hearts. Then he finishes with the question. Do you not remember? What an important question. Understand this. The best inoculation against spiritual blindness and discontentment. The best way to go against those things, to swim upriver against those things, is remembering. When God's people didn't remember, every single time, they missed out on what God was doing. Psalm 106, verses 6 through 7, says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. This is why uh, all over the book of Joshua, God told them to remember pile up stones, to remember what the Lord had done for them for generations. This is why God gave them so many feasts throughout the year like the Passover meal, to remember who he was and what he had done for them. We're given hope for the future and contentment in the present by looking back, by remembering. So, do you remember? Do you remember? Look at what Paul says to his disciple Timothy. Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.8, he's teaching him. And he says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Remembering what the Lord has done is vital to our spiritual lives. If the disciples actually remembered, do you think they'd be worried about a lack of physical bread in their boat? I wonder what it is that you've forgotten about God this year, this month, or even this week. How's your hearing? How's your seeing? What do you need to remember? Thankfully, in God's infinite wisdom, he's given us, as his people, a weekly meal that calls us to remember the most significant truth in the history of the world. A meal where Jesus himself said, do this in remembrance of me. With that in mind, let's pray and remember once again.